The following podcast is a Dear Media production. She's a lifestyle blogger extraordinaire. Fantastic. And he's a serial entrepreneur. A very smart cookie. And now Lauren Everts and Michael Bostick are bringing you along for the ride. Get ready for some major realness. Welcome to the Skinny Confidential, him and her. Aha. All of this is a blur to me. Most of it I re- is from the police report. But I put him in a, a chokehold from my martial arts days. The LAPD recognized the chokehold I put him in it was a deadly chokehold, so they charged me with attempted murder. That's that's where that's where straight pepper diet, my book, begins. Welp, this episode goes all over the place. I think you guys are going to love it. We talk about addiction. We talk about alcoholism. We talk about an addiction to massage parlors. We talk about prison, prison reforms. Prison, prison reform. It goes all over the place. I am such a big fan of this guest today, Joseph Noss. He wrote the book Straight Pepper Diet. I found it through Amy Dresner, who's been on the show. She writes so candidly about her addiction story in My Fair Junkie. And she told me to read this book. I fell in love with it. I just thought it was so uh, real, but also so hopeful. And he was truly so honest. Joseph talks about how he was raised by his mother, who was a heroin addict turned shut-in depressive. And he talks about crime, poverty, like Michael said, jail. We kind of go all over the place. And this interview is candid. He also happens to have graduated from Pepperdine. He is a lawyer. He's an author of two books, The Straight Pepper Diet and The Paul's Graph Revelation. What I really love about his story is there's a real arc to it. Obviously, it it follows somebody who grew up in very hard circumstances, who had um, to overcome those circumstances, who along the way dealt with addiction, prison, all sorts of problems. But really, you know, if you look at Joseph's life now, you know, successful author, successful marriage, really turned his life around. And I think these are the type of stories people need to hear, you know, if you're in a dark place and you're looking for that bright light at the end of the tunnel. Stories like Joseph's are really, you know, powerful because it shows somebody who really was um, struggling and who came out the other side. So I hope everybody enjoys this episode. And just to tease it a little bit, he was a lawyer. He went out for a couple of drinks. He woke up the next morning handcuffed to a hospital bed and charged with attempted murder. So this episode goes all over the place. And I would say if you have kids in the car, maybe this isn't the episode to listen to right now. With that, let's welcome Joseph to the Skinny Confidential, him and her podcast. This is the Skinny Confidential, him and her. I am so excited to have Joseph here because I read his book, Straight Pepper Diet, a while ago and fell in love with the book. It's so good. And he just wrote a new book and he's here and we're going to ask him all the questions. First, can you just tell the audience a little bit about how you grew up? Your childhood was gnarly. Can you give us a little peek behind the scenes at that? I grew up, well, first of all, I'm 50. I just turned 50, and I was born in 1971. I grew up in Riverside, California, which is on the in the Inland Empire in, here in California, in Southern California. My mom and dad were really young. She was 17 when she had me, and my, mom, my dad was 19. I grew up really poor in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. My dad left when I was six weeks old, and my mom was a heroin addict. So we grew up on welfare and poverty. And, you know, it's funny when I look back on it, you don't know what you don't know. So whatever your life is, is what you think life is like. You're fish in water. And so my mom and I used to drive around. She had this old beat up VW bug. And we used to drive around and 
singing songs and stuff on the radio. And I thought it was all great. And I remember one of my first memories is going to score dope with her. Of course, I didn't know I was scoring dope. And she left and I was in the car for a long time. And then the next thing I know, she's arrested and she's taken to the police station and I'm, I'm taken into custody in the police station too. You know, and then after that, she got out and she went on methadone and, and stuff like that. But what yeah. age were you when this was when this was going on? When she was arrested, I think I was in first grade. Okay, so it's like yeah. six, five, six, seven yeah, years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At what point did you realize in your childhood, my mom's a heroin addict? Was there a, an epiphany where you saw her doing it in front of you? Like, how did you start to know, oh, there's something wrong here? Or did you, or were you just, you just didn't realize what? it was wrong because you were, that was all you knew? Well... I guess after she got arrested, she would go, we would go to the methadone clinic. So I kind of knew what methadone was. I mean, one of my, another fun experience I used to have is my mom and I would take the bus to the methadone clinic and they would always give, I'd be in the waiting room and they would always give me Kool-Aid or no, not Kool-Aid, um, high C. And it looked the same color as the, as the uh, methadone. And so she would take the methadone and I would take that. So I kind of knew that she was a heroin addict. And then after that, she kind of became a shut-in depressive. So it actually got worse. And she started taking pills and speed and stuff like that. So that actually kind of was kind of worse. When you're on heroin, you just sleep all the time. You know, I'd come home from school sometimes after she got off of heroin and she'd be like cleaning and stuff and the windows would be open. And I'd be like, what the hell is going on? You know, that was really weird because my mom didn't clean or open windows and stuff. She basically slept till, you know, two in the afternoon. I'd come home from school sometimes and she'd still be asleep. And what would you do like as a, as a young kid when she was just sleeping? Like, what, like, how did you, did you have any friends, any siblings, like any, any, what were you doing to entertain yourself? Well, I was by myself. I didn't, I didn't have any siblings. Actually, my dad went on and had a whole separate family. So I have a whole, I have like five brothers and sisters who I didn't know until way into my twenties. And so now I have a relationship with some of them, which is great. But when I was a kid, I didn't have anybody. You know, when I was a kid, I had a lot of techniques, which were geared around getting food because we didn't have enough food to eat. And somehow I had figured out that if I went to a better school that I could do better. So I, I got, I used one of my friend's addresses to sign up for a better school, which meant I had to ride my bike three miles to school every day, but I got to be around kids that were not super poor. So I would spend the night at their houses as often as possible and go to their houses after school to eat. And then during the summer, I would go to the boys club, which is like I don't know if people know what that's like, uh, but it's like kind of like the YMC, poor version of the YMCA. It was an old Safeway supermarket that had been abandoned or whatever and converted into a boys club and they would get donations of pinball machines and stuff. And that's where all the kids hang out and they would give away food during the summer. So that's how I was able to eat. I mean, it's not like I was starving, you know, it's, it's America, it's not Africa. It's not, it's, it's, it's a different type of uh, food. Sure, but it wasn't issue. maybe as abundant as as the people that the school that you were going to, right? Like they, if, like if you started going to a school with people that had a little bit more means than you, they were they were not struggling like that. Oh no, 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 yeah, no. So did you? I have, went to Grant, what, this nice elementary school. I remember, like, I had a friend whose dad was a lawyer, and we'd go to their houses, and I'd just be like, oh my god! Like, I remember one of the kids had a two story house, and I'd just be like, what, this guy's like, oh, his dad must be a billionaire, or something, <laughs> you know. And now I look back on it and I drive around that neighborhood and stuff and I realize, oh, those are just lower to middle class kids. But I was so poor that I didn't know, I, you know, I, I kind of knew the difference because my aunt, I used to go over to my aunt's house and she, they had, they were kind of middle class, but I thought they were super rich too. They had a pool and it was like, 
It was like Disneyland. What are some tools and tactics and, and good things that came out of your childhood? Like, for instance, like, did it cause you to get really creative with things like independence? Like, what are some good things that you look back on that you're grateful for? Uh, perspective. To this day, when I get into a car that I know is going to start, I feel grateful. And I've had a car that I know will start for many, many years now. And yet I still get in and go like, this is really cool. So just like not taking things for granted. I was very lucky to have to have some aunts and uncles that I would see every once in a while and the kids that I spoke of. And so I did see a different way of life. So I think that was something that, that probably was uh, beneficial and a turning point for me as opposed to maybe some other kids that were less fortunate who didn't see that as much. There's neighborhoods in, in right around here in South Central and stuff around Los Angeles where these kids like never leave a mile radius and they have they don't ever see anything but poverty. And I actually got to see some other things. So I did know it was possible. And so to the long answer to your short question is education. Like I realized like, hey, there's a way out of this and it's education. And so I was, good at liberal arts type stuff, English and things like that. So I knew that if I could do well in school, I could get out of poverty. What was your first drug or alcohol experience? Do you remember it? In high school, I had a drink a couple times and maybe a couple joints or whatever it's called now, <laughs> marijuana. But my first time getting drunk wasn't until when I was in New York for the first time when I was in college. So I didn't get drunk until I was 20, So you, you stayed 21. away from drugs and alcohol for a while? Yeah, I mean, I saw my I saw my mom and what and my dad and what it had done to them, and so drugs were totally verboten for me personally. But I thought alcohol wasn't drugs, and so I still stayed away from them because I was straight edge in high school, which is more a musical thing than a. I don't know if you guys you know. have the X on your hand. Yeah, yeah, I used yeah. to wear the X on my hand and all that stuff, and go to these little gigs and stuff. So that kept me out of trouble for a while. But when I got into college and I realized, okay, now I'm. I'm on my way to law school and I had my first experience in New York and that was like the first time I ever got wasted drunk. And I, I always say this, like on, in one night I cheated on my girlfriend, first time I'd ever been done that, smoked cigarettes, first time I'd ever done that and got wasted on alcohol and first time I'd ever done that, one night in New York. And I had, and it became the new best thing ever. Like I realized like everything I've been doing that I enjoyed none of it came close to the experience of that, of feeling like that, looking up at those sky rises in the cold, smoking a cigarette, drinking, and uh, cheating. So when you cheated on her, did you guys break up? No, no, she didn't know about it. So you just kept it a secret? Yeah. And then did it become the new norm to go out, get drunk, cheat on her? You said that you loved that feeling. Yeah, 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 it did. I, I was terribly, I was a very principled person. I always have been. I have these ideas of what I want to do with my life and how I want to live. How did those, how did those principles manifest themselves? Like what, give me an example before, like what was one of your principles or two of your principles? Well, I'll give you a a kind of controversial one, right? And this is a good example. When I read Diet for a New America, when I was in high school, I immediately became um, vegetarian and we were super poor. I didn't have enough resources to do it. I just believed that was the right thing to do. But then when I started drinking, after two years later, when I started drinking, that all went away, right? So it shows you like, there's a, there's a principle that's very specific, hardcore, and then immediately it just washed away. And so, but I don't know where, like just basic spiritual principles, practical spiritual principles of honesty, integrity, love, those things. I, if you ask me where they came from, I don't, I don't know. I just, 
thought they were the right thing to do. And I saw it like a wholesome life. I mean, ironically, given what, what you've read in my book, I just love wholesomeness. Like when you're around poverty and heroin and that type of stuff, the last thing in the world I, I wanted to do was exactly what I ended up doing in my addictions. I, I, I just wanted a, a life and a, a two bedroom a house and a good job and I'd be happy forever. You, know? you just wanted some, <laughs> some sense of being normal, right? Yeah. What yeah. was going on with your parents during this time, right before you went to college? What, like, had they, your dad came back in your life? Your mom was still around? Like, how, what were they up to? I didn't meet my dad until I think I was like eight years old or something. And he was always gone. He never came back. He, you know, he had his own trajectory of not good trajectory. My mom just, she and just, he did drugs or no? Well, of course, <laughs> according to my dad, who doesn't talk to me anymore, I mean, he doesn't. He, he said he didn't. My mom, told me that she first did heroin because my mom, my dad turned her on to it when she was 14, but he denies that. But yeah, he, he's a, he's an addict, no question about it to this day. He's amazing. He has great genes, so he's still alive, but yeah. Well, but yeah, they never got to back together. When you're growing up in this environment of, of your mom using heroin and then she switches to speed and is there like... I imagine like the house is like disheveled. Like there's, is there like needles open? Is there like paraphernalia everywhere? Like what is the environment or was it, is it like a clean thing where you don't see anything and you never saw anything? Well, I do remember. Okay. Well, here's a couple of examples. Uh, we live in a one bedroom house or one bedroom apartment in the alley. We call it the alley. She lived on, she slept on the sofa and it was one of those vinyl plastic sofas. And there was always holes. I mean, it had more holes on it than it had not holes because she would nod out while smoking a cigarette and burn the burn the uh, plastic. Luckily, it didn't catch on fire because the plastic would just burn out. And um, I do remember a few times seeing bent spoons. Like she would take a spoon and bend it this way, like an S, so it stood up on itself and then it would have burn marks on it. Now I know what that's from. Back then, I didn't know. I guess you heat the heroin in that. But other than that... No, no. I mean, I, I do remember these little um, tinfoil packets that my mom used to get Valium from a psychiatrist. That, you know, but yeah, that's it. And the mood changes. When she was doing heroin, she'd just sleep. And when she would do the speed, she would be like in these weird moods where I'd get home and she'd be like cleaning the house and cooking and stuff is really strange. This is like one of my favorite partnerships, and that is No Days Wasted. Let me tell you, it is here to help you maximize life's moments. It's here to keep things fun. So basically, No Days Wasted has DHM detox in it. And this is this amazing herbal supplement, which essentially is a vitamin for when you drink. So if you are like me and you need a little support when you have a couple of skinny margaritas and you want to feel good the next day, you want to try this herbal supplement. Basically, the whole design of this is to help you bounce back the next day and support your liver. So imagine this. You're having a few drinks at night, maybe a glass of wine. It's pretty easy for me to imagine. Yeah, maybe a beer. You're having a great time. And the next morning, you wake up feeling normal and amazing. And that is all because of no days wasted. So no brain fog, no feeling gross, just feeling amazing. How I use it is I put a couple capsules in my handbag if I'm out. I was out with friends the other night, me and my three girlfriends. And I just took two capsules after my first couple of drinks and it goes to work interesting story. My girlfriend didn't take it and woke up feeling like shit. Shout out to Faith. And I woke up feeling like a butterfly. So it really does work. Okay. If you're having a really big night out, then you can double up and take two packets. You do you here. 
I know that we all like to keep a healthy schedule, but we also like to have some fun. So this is a completely risk-free purchase. So if you don't love it, they'll refund you on your first box. But I know you guys are going to be obsessed, especially after my night the other night. This is such an easy decision. I got you a 20% off code, 20% off your order and free shipping in the United States. Just head over to nodayswasted.co slash skinny and use promo code skinny at checkout. That's nodayswasted.co slash skinny for 20% off your order. Cheers. I remember when I was in college, I lived with someone who was an addict and, and there was aluminum foil all over the house everywhere. And I, I didn't know what it was. I was like, what is this? I'd find aluminum foil everywhere. <sighs> I want to jump forward to, so your first drink. So how does it spiral quick or is it a, a slow addiction happening? Like, did you immediately when you started drinking was like, I want to do this every single night or was it slow? No, not at all. I was a, I was in uh, college. I was kicking ass. Uh, you know, I was the president of this and the president of that. And I was 4.0 and and I had my trajectory. I was trying to get into law school. I went to a, a, a decent co- undergraduate college, but nothing that was going to pull any strings. So I had to get really good grades and I, I did everything. And I worked for this really great lawyer, trial lawyer. I mean, I was doing great. I was kickboxing at the time still. And I said this whole kickboxing career that ran parallel to my academic career. But it was just in the, in the back of my head, like, this is the best thing. So when you have time, you can go do this. And then when I got into law school, I got really depressed. And that's when I really started drinking. I ended up in law school. I lived at the dorms. And I was one of the few people who didn't have anybody in the dorm with me because my, my fellow dorm mate had a house in Malibu. His parents lived in Malibu. And so he would just stay there all the time. So I was by myself all the time in these dorms. And I got really depressed. And I started drinking a lot at that point. And I still graduated and passed the bar, but slowly it got worse. And by the time I got to Oceanside, I was full on. And it was, was it just alcohol at this point, or did you start graduating to other substances? Just alcohol. Alcohol and cigarettes and sex, sex addiction in all different forms. You talk about that in your book. You're so open about how you talk about how you sort of got addicted. And I don't know if that's the right word, but addicted to like massage parlors. Yeah. I've what? never heard anyone talk about that. So for, my first question is you just walk into a massage parlor and, and say, I want a massage. And then it ends with a happy ending. Massage parlors are this fucking, are this crazy thing in American culture that it's come out a little bit lately in the last 10 years. But it is phenomenal how many massage parlors there are and how how it is. It's, it's Our a, producer it, just popped a boner. He's he's Googling massage parlors right now. He's so you got to yeah, be careful the, of that. He's in the back yeah. mapping them out. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. So massage parlors. Actually, when you asked me that question about addiction, probably my first addiction was 976 numbers. That came before drinking. I actually Sex got hotlines. It. Sex hotlines. I remember I, I actually, when I was in high school, I called a bunch of sex hotlines. I got off from it and- I got totally addicted to it. To you the wrote point, about that in the book. Yeah. I totally got addicted to it to the point of where I had to, I had such a huge phone bill that I had to pretend I was my dad and call them and tell them that, you know, that this is, you know, use a deep voice and got them to reduce it and paid it off. And you I was said, like, hey, this was that. a minor you were doing this with, you better cut it down. Yeah. And then I had picked up a street prostitute several times in Riverside when I was in college. And it was just such a rush. People describe, like I've been in meetings and people will describe what heroin's like, like going to the dealer and then scoring. Like they'll talk about going to the dealer is almost as much of a rush as the actual drug itself. 
And that's exactly what it was like, like the, the rush of it. So that was, I'm really lucky I never got hurt or got a disease or anything. But yeah, I did that quite a bit. I have a severe addiction to foot spas. I go, I'm actually going to one today. At, what the hell have you been doing in those spas? Now, I, now I'm, now I'm going to be wondering. I go to the foot spa and I get two hours uninterrupted of work done on my phone because you can just get your feet massaged. Oh my God. Is that the kind of like parlor that you're talking about? The foot spas that I go to? Like if I ask for no. a half, and it's, it, it, I, I'm honestly asking. <laughs> He's like, no, those, that's not this it. This is not the same kind. If I you fucking hope massage, not, Lauren. If you went to a massage parlor, they would, they would just turn you down. They would just tell you, oh, we're busy. Okay, but let These me are ask. Unincorpor- Usually they're in unincorporated areas. Okay. There are some still. Like interestingly in Santa Monica where I had moved yeah. to, they had some that were that were uh, grandfathered in because they'd been there so long because Santa Monica used to be a military town. And so on Pico, they used to have these massage parlors. They probably couldn't get in there now. Like, but So anyways, the point is, is you go in these massage parlors, it's all immigrants, Asian immigrants that work well, 90%. You go in there for a massage, and if you know the right lingo and the right things to do, and you put the money in the right place, then you can get whatever what, you what's want. What's the lingo? I need to know the lingo. Like what do you, like well, you say? Like do you wink? Like what is the lingo? Wink. You know, I had a I had a friend in recovery who I told what I'm about to tell you to, and it it, it he spiraled. Went on a, it spiraled. He went into a whole thing of it so well, I, I don't want to get anybody in trouble but you know the Taylor's taking is, notes listen let's put a disclaimer you got to use your best judgment here people don't 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 spiral but we we I think people do no I'm know. curious yeah, I'm, yeah. that part of your book I'm, I'm very very curious it's human nature to be curious I want to know like is there a little thing like do what do you do well okay so I remember the first time I ever saw when I was driving with my dad I went to work for him he had a fence company I went to work for him and we drove down this unincorporated area out by Pomona poor area and i remember seeing it i was a kid and being like eh, this isn't right like why would a massage parlor be out in the middle of nowhere like this and it looked real weird and stuff and so that caught my attention it wasn't like two years later i did it for the first time as soon as i turned 18 i drove out there basically what it is you you go in it's always very clandestine it's very dark and closed and there's big security gates you walk in there's a little lobby Someone opens up the door. It's usually an older Asian lady. And she says, have you been here before? And you say yes. And she asks you who you saw. If you've never seen anybody, you make up a name like Sunny or April or May, some, something like that. And uh, then they take you back. And if uh, you put a towel, they give you a towel, you un- undress. If you take the towel off and you're completely exposed with your chest down on the table, then they know and you put the... They, it costs like $40 at least. I haven't done it many, many years. But if it, it costs $40 to go. And if you put another 40 or I think it was 40 at the time, maybe 60 down on the table, then they know that you are want to have sex. And, and then that's that. That is so crazy. So you just take the towel off. Well, the other things I think get you there too. You have to like, because the, the most important thing, especially if you look like me, is that they want to make sure you're not a cop. Right? Oh. So, and the cops don't bother these places. First of all, they're they're good neighbors. They pay their taxes. They're in unincorporated areas. Tech, typically, it's kind of a quote unquote victimless crime. Now, I don't purport to that at all. Now, I know what I know now. I, I believe that a lot of these places are very, very dark places. And a lot of these people are would qualify as sex traffic victims. What do you know, you know? now? Can you educate the audience on what, what it's, is actually happening? Well, I believe based on just what I've seen in the news and stuff that a lot of these women will get here illegally 
And then their passports will be held and they have this deal where you work off your passport. You've heard about this stuff before, right? Yep. And they I never, haven't. I have never, not heard this. Well, okay. Say you, you get, you, you're living in a third world country where you can't, you can barely make a living or barely survive. And you come to America. Next thing you know, you're living in one of these places or, or a place next to it. And you're working off your passport. They say, we'll take you here. And for $20,000, we'll, we'll get you a passport and we'll get you a place to live. And you have to work it off. And of course, they never credit you. And they, their intention is to keep you there forever. And you're basically a, a prostitute. It's not like I, I doubt any of these people wanted to be there because they because they prefer to do this than a, you know, another job. I mean, I didn't think that at the time. I just thought, oh, this is harmless. Maybe I supplant or suppress that in my mind. But now looking at it, I mean, it's pretty obvious that was the case. I think it's cool you wrote about it because it, talking about it removes the judgment around it. And I think that it's it was really honest and bold that you wrote about it. The first time that you went, were you automatically addicted to that? Was it an automatic thing or was it something you're doing every day? Are you doing no. it once a year? Like what, what does that look like? It depends on how much, I mean, it cost $100 a pop. And a lot of the times I was a college student, so it wasn't like I had that much money, but once a week, twice a week, if it was bad. I mean, it got to the point where certain ones, I would have more than one at a time, or more than one masseuse at a, at a time. And so that kept up in the ante of what you did and how many people you did it with. Kind of like experience stretching. What's Ex experience stretching? We've talked about on the show, experience stretching, and I've, sorry to the audience that's heard me say this before, but experience stretching is like the example I've heard, I think a guy that did is Kevin Rose. He's like, you can go out and see the most amazing sunset in the world. And I apologize for people that have heard this, but in the, and you say, you look to your partner or whatever, and you say, oh, this life couldn't get better than this. This is the best sunset I've ever seen. Life, this is the best. And then a year goes by and you see that same sunset, but maybe you have a drink in your hand and you're making a little bit of money. You're like, wow, life can't get better than this. And then the next time you're like, maybe you're in you know, an exotic location and you see that same sunset, you're like, well, it can't get better. And you just keep stretching and right. stretching. And like, what, maybe you're on a yacht one time, like can't get better. And then what happens is you see that same sunset that originally made you happy and it actually makes you depressed because oh. you've stretched the experience so far that the stuff you used to think was great has become actually like it, it makes you feel like you're regressing or going back right. and it upsets you. This isn't a weird example to use, but in the massage parts, like you go and you have one the first time, you're like, okay, and you do two. And it's like you can't you can't go back to the one because you've stretched the experience so far. That yeah, yeah. The original experience is actually depressing or you know, not or in your mind not good anymore. Right. I see. It's so it's like tolerance. It's like the for a drug addict be like tolerance. Exactly. Um, like so like an addict can't have like a single drink anymore because they've gone so or like they can't right. just do alcohol anymore, right? Like it's 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 called experience stretching. Gotcha. Oh, learn something. Yeah. I mean, that sounds kind of like what happens when you just keep going and going. Were you simultaneously drinking when you the massage parlor was happening, or did the drinking come after? Here we are back in familiar territory, Lauren, with the beta brand dress pant yoga pant. That's my very favorite familiar. kind of pant that you like to wear. You got way too excited over those pants the other day. I, <laughs> I can't keep you off me. I mean, it's really, really crazy. If you are clean out of loungewear and you want to mix things up, I'm telling you, you have to try the beta brand dress pant yoga pant. I have been talking about these for two years. They are comfortable. It seriously feels like you're in pajamas. Nothing is too tight, but they're also so flattering. So your significant other won't leave you alone. Comfort's great, but let's talk about how they look. Sometimes let's it's annoying. Let's talk about how they hug, tie in, form to the body. I mean, even Taylor checked me out. They're, how dare you, Taylor? They're they're really, really working for me. They're so, so good. For I can't really blame them. Work from home pants. Like I'm telling you, if you are Zooming with a coworker, 
Skyping with a friend, you want to try out these pants. My favorite, uh, they're my ride or dies, are the skinny ones in black. They have all different colors, all different styles. You can choose from whatever you want, but if you want the exact ones I have, they are the skinny black pants. And I'm telling you, they look professional and stylish, but like I said, they are comfortable. On their website, they have boot cut, straight leg, skinny, cropped, eight pocket, and more. Tons of different colors. I'm telling you, they are going to be your new favorite pants. Also, if you're like me and you don't like to wash your pants a lot, they're wrinkle resistant, okay? Wrinkle resistant stretch knit fabric to be exact. Right now, all Skinny Confidential, him and her listeners get 25% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash skinny. That's 25% off your first order for a limited time at betabrand.com slash skinny. Find out why women are buying five different pairs of these pants. All you're going to do is go to betabrand.com slash skinny for 25% off. They kind of like I consider myself omni addict. Cigarettes, what does that mean? cigarettes, alcohol, sex. And then within the sex, it would be like a hierarchy. One night stand, probably the best. Massage parlor, two. And then porn, far distant three or whatever. And so whatever combination of whatever I could get would be what I could get. Sex addiction probably was my first addiction, my first love. And then alcohol kind of took over. I did realize the danger of sex addiction. I mean, that was one of the parts that made the massage parlor so so much of a thing was like, you got the rush, almost the rush of like straight prostitution, but you also got the protection because those places are very, very careful about, about security and stuff. So it's very hard to get busted at one of those places, unless you just like break into one in the middle of the night and <laughs> attack somebody or something. At what point do you do you start to feel like, hey, this is a problem? Because it sounds like you had your life in I mean, if you're in law school and putting yourself through and getting good grades, it sounds like you're also functioning. At what point did you say like, oh, I'm no longer functioning. This is actually a problem. Or did it take a while for you to realize that? Well, with the sex stuff, I always thought it was immoral. And so when I became a lawyer and I moved to Oceanside, I for the most part, stopped. I had a couple of relapses. I stopped that and I had a girlfriend that lived with me. So that was pretty easy. And then the alcohol and the cigarettes ramped up. And I didn't really think the alcohol and cigarettes were an addiction. I knew that sometimes they were a problem, but I didn't know they were necessarily an addiction. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I didn't really want to stop any of this stuff until I got in rehab and was charged with attempted murder. And what what, what are the okay? What are the circumstances behind that? That sounds that's an escalation. <laughs> Sorry, that's not the writers are supposed to slowly dull this out. I apologize. You no, I like that. I like like okay. So 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 maybe that's the period of time you you almost kill somebody and and then you get arrested. That's the, that's the catalyst, or you know, I was working at this law firm in the Inland Empire, one of the best law firms out there, and I got a, a DUI and I rolled a car off of the side of the freeway at eighty five miles per hour with a passenger, charged with a felony Shit. DUI. I thought to myself, okay, I'm really embarrassed. I need to move. Did the law firm keep you or they? They kept me. Funny, funnily enough, basically every partner in the law firm took me into their office after it came back, a huge black eye, and basically said, ah, don't worry about it. Just take it easy when you drink. Every, and they told me stories about their clients that had DUIs that they represented them, and they, they thought it was funny, quite frankly. The DA didn't think it was funny. They were going sure. after, they were trying to put me in jail. They were trying to make an example of me because I was an attorney. So it was very clear to me at the time that I had a driving problem. So I moved to Santa Monica where I could walk to bars. When I moved to Santa Monica, I got a better job making more money at a better firm. And I, and I could walk to bars at that point. So the, the drunk driving was no longer an issue. So I, so I just drank and drank and drank. And then when I was about to fail out of that law firm, I started my own law firm with a friend of mine. 
and we made even more money and we're doing better and better. And I had more time and more money. So I drank more and more and more trips to Vegas, et cetera, et cetera. I ended up, there was massage parlors around there. It was on, I, I lived on the 34th and Pico in this condo over there. And there was these massage parlors that I frequented over there. And one night I got drunk out of my mind into a complete blackout. And I went to the massage parlor. It was like two in the morning. I had stopped at a bank and got a hundred dollars so I could pay for it. I pounded on the front door. It was like in this motel that had been one leg of the motel um, had been converted into a massage parlor and the others had been converted into single residence occupancies. And I went to the, pounded on it and woke some people up and went to the back door. Nobody was in there. It was like three in the morning. And I climbed in the window to the massage parlor, go in the bathroom like you do. They usually, they give you a towel and you, you change. And I went in the bathroom, I changed and uh, took off all my clothes and walked in and it was not the massage parlor. It was the adjacent room that was occupied by some dude. And oh, he shit. had a industrial fan going because it was really hot. So he didn't hear me and he was a neat freak. So the, so it looked like a business bathroom. It was completely devoid of any personal objects. So he freaks out, I freak out and uh, we get in a fight and uh, he chases me out of there. So he finds you naked in his bathroom through the window. No, I walk into the living room. Oh, so you're He wakes naked. up naked. Uh, I might freak out too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might kill me. Yeah. Which very well could have happened. I'm lucky it didn't happen. I had put him in a, he was freaking out and I was trying to quiet him. I mean, all of this is a blur to me. Most of it I re is from the police report, but I put him in a, a chokehold from my martial arts days. The LAPD recognized the chokehold I put him in was a deadly chokehold. So they charged me with attempted murder. That's, that's, where, that's where straight pepper diet, my book begins. It's so good, you guys. You have to read it. <laughs> What do you think when you wake up the next morning? Are you like, oh, fuck? Or are you like, I need a glass of water. I'm hungover. Well, I woke up. When I woke up, I woke up with a doctor stapling my head shut because the guys had beat, had hit me over the head with a skateboard a bunch of times. Which was, the, the guy that you broke into his house? Yeah, I broke into the house. He, he and his neighbor chased me across the street. And one of them had a bat and one of them had a, a skateboard. And because I was so anesthetized, they were hitting me. I was trying to get out of there, but they were trying to trap me because the cops were coming. There was a huge crowd of people and there was a helicopter over above, but the, the cops hadn't got there yet. So they were trying to keep me there and I was trying to leave, putting on my clothes. And they kept hitting me to keep me still. And I kept on trying to go, but, but I was so anesthetized that I was like, like a tranquilized bear. So this guy kept hitting me over the head with a skateboard. And I do remember thinking like, oh, I'm going to die. Like if he hits me again, I'm going to die. So I, I skateboards are fucking dangerous as a weapon. No, really. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like people like people don't realize like with those trucks and the wheels and the metal, like, oh God, yeah. brutal. Yeah. So I, he cracked open my skull and I, I woke up in a hospital with a, with a doctor stapling my head shut. And so to answer your question, I guess I didn't go to sleep after that. They, it was like this nightmare. You get taken to twin towers and it's just twin towers. It's like this just. What Absolute. Is that? Twin Towers is the jail in downtown LA. It's one of the largest jails in the country. It's one of the most dangerous, horrible places in the world and outside of maybe Kandahar or something. You get checked in there and and it's just a walking nightmare. I mean, I was I was to answer your question, I was suicidal. I was basically like, man, I had a really good run. I did some um experience stretching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd been to yeah, some, you did a little bit. <laughs> I'd been to Europe. I'd I What age was this? Sorry. 
Uh, I was, let's see, this was in 2003, so I was 32. Okay. And I had been to Europe and I had started my own law practice. I had won some trials and I had far surpassed anybody's expectations of me, I think, at that point. And so I thought, this is it. I'm done. Some people die at 80. Some people die at 30. Whatever. I think another question that a lot of people would have that that is human nature to be curious about is jail. I, I am so curious about jail. I'm watching that show with my husband. What's it called again? 30 Days In. 30 Days In. Where or the, 60 Days In. Or 60 Days In. And like, what is it like? What is the food like? What is the water like? What are the guards like? What's the atmosphere? If you could really describe it. And I'm sure they have to read your book because the book, you guys, is so good. And you, you do go into detail, but I would just love to know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wrote the, the book, Straight Pepper Diet, in first person, present. And because I wanted people to step into my shoes and experience what it's like to be in jail and prison. And, you know, I got a lot of people like those sections a lot because, you know, it's something that normal people hopefully don't experience. And, uh, you know, I had two experiences. I had jail and then I had prison, which were two different things. I write extensively about that both in the book. Twin Towers is is this dangerous, horrible place. You are brought in there and you're stripped and you're put in these orange jumpsuits. I was put in a special color jumpsuit because I was a suicide risk. You walk, it's basically like this this weird maze. There's literally lines, different colored lines that go through the whole institution and they tell you, follow this red line. And sometimes you follow a line and you're not even around any COs or correctional officers. You just follow the line until you get to wherever next is locked and they they take you there. and so you're with a bunch of other people and some of them are very experienced and they feel like, you know, you feel like they're at Starbucks and they've been there so many times, it's no big deal for them. And some people are like me where they're just terrified out of their mind. And the COs, the, the correctional officers in jails are deputies. They're sheriff officers, right? They're, they're deputies. So when you're a sheriff officer, at least the way it used to be is you go to the sheriff's academy and then you have to spend two years in the jail before you go out on, go out on the town. Some of them are okay and some of them get desensitized. They get really desensitized to to us, to, to, to the criminals that are in there and they, and they don't treat them like humans and they, they're brutal. I mean, they just, do you empathize at all with that? Or do you think like, what, I mean, putting yourself in there, I mean, not, I don't one way or the other, but what do you think causes that desensitization? Is it because they're just dealing with this stuff day in, day out that at some point it's like they got to disconnect? Or do you think that there's a way to correct that and make it so they don't get desensitized? Can we do another podcast on that? Yeah, we can. (laughs) You know, I have a criminal justice degree. I have a a juris doctorate. I have a lot of friends who are cops. One of my best friends, a cop in the LAPD. I, I worked at a gym that was full of cops and I've, I, I was a lawyer. So I had a lot of experience with cops and, and what it takes. And I was going to become a cop. At one time I was in, I was kickboxing at the nationals in Long Beach and, and I was waiting to go on, on to my uh, fight. And there was the, the cops, they were recruiting there because it was a big martial arts thing. And they were, they were breaking down and they came over to me and started talking to me and, you know, they were telling me like, oh, you can make 50 grand a year, you have a bachelor's degree and all this stuff. And so I was really into it. And I, but I look back on that and I think that maybe there's a, a problem that the LAPD is recruiting at martial arts academies, you know, at martial arts things. Maybe they should be recruiting at, at math events. So I think personally that we get a, there's a long tradition of cops, officers being kind of from a demographic that is that takes more physical machismo into into value than emotional and, and mental strength. 
And when you are put in a situation where you're around dangerous situations and dangerous people, and those people tend to look alike, whether it be by color or demographic, you, if you are not trained properly and have emotional and educational strength in this regard, you will end up to start seeing those people as inferior or as criminal and and so I think a lot of that is where it comes from. And I don't think they, st I don't think most of them, maybe some of them, definitely some of them start out like that. But I think a lot of them become that. There's a reason that Twin Towers has been under federal mandate for what, 20 years now. What There's does that reason. mean, federal mandate? Federal mandate means they've been sued under a, 19, a section 1983 case, a civil rights case, and that the, that the attorney general of the United States, I believe, is who has jurisdiction over it, has said, you guys are not following, you guys are not basically complying with civil rights guidelines, and that so the feds have jurisdiction over them and they're supposed to do certain things. I mean, Lee Baca is in prison now, I think. He was the sheriff during most of his time. I think he's in prison now. Funnily enough, I saw him at Alhambra the other day playing golf like <laughs> before he was about to get sentenced to go to prison. But anyways, that's a long thing to answer your question, but something I feel. No, I think it was a, I, I think I, it was a, a thoughtful answer. And I think that you're probably spot on there. It's just, it's the root cause of, you know, the, the, you got to correct this. You Yeah. You got to correct this stuff at the, at the root, right? Like it's, it, and I think that that's a very difficult thing to do. I don't have the answer. I don't think any of us do, but, but I think your, your answer is pretty spot on. Do you think the way that, that, the inmates were treated was fair that you saw or do you think that there was a lot of things wrong with it oh no 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 they're not treated fairly at all it's just you know that's I mean, what i observed when i watched that show and i know it's a show but that's it doesn't yeah. seem like they're treated very fairly if, if you ever look on facebook and somebody will commit a crime and then you'll see somebody who's who you think think is like a normal um housewife or whatever and they'll be like so and so did this i hope they get raped in jail that's kind of the american a lot of Americans feel that way about certain criminals. They're just like, fuck them. I hope they rot in hell. Whatever they get in jail is what they deserve. And I just think to myself, and this is before I was a criminal, <laughs> I think to myself like, man, that's not what this criminal justice system is for. Maybe you believe in revenge and maybe you don't. Maybe you believe in deterrence. But the bottom line is our justice system is supposed to take freedom away from this person. It's not supposed to torture them. And going to where I went, Chino and Twin Towers, that's torture. Now, I'm not blaming that on the COs there. A lot of them are understaffed. There's not enough money there. It's a failing institution. Both of them are failing institutions. If you look at other capitalistic first world countries, you don't see what we have in, in our prisons and jail. And a lot of it has to do with public perception. Yeah, I, I think all... I, I... I don't know how they go about fixing it at this point because obviously the prison populations are getting bigger and bigger and in those populations they're getting more and more segregated right and you get into this situation where there are certain demographics of that criminal base that are just going to do they're, they're straight criminals right they're not interested in being rehabilitated they're in there they're going to be there for a while and they're going to do what they're going to do but there's a much larger segment in my opinion that is there doing their time trying to get by made maybe made a mistake and what what I think is scary about the prison system is we need to be able to re rehabilitate those people that are maybe nonviolent offenders that are trying to turn their life around. But the system is maybe holding them down and not letting them escape it, which is one, a burden on taxpayer money and a bit on the states and on the Fed. And two, also holding these people in a system where they don't have a chance of getting out. Right. And yeah. I don't I don't know how to go. I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows how to go about solving that. But 
it's a it's a big problem in this country. Well, we can start at the DA level, and we've done that in Los Angeles. We got rid of Jackie Lacey, and we elected a new DA who has the principles that most people in Los Angeles believe with. We've gotten been bail reform. We're getting rid of private prisons. I think um, the new administration just put some type of federal regulations out, or maybe complete. I don't know exactly, but limiting private prisons. I mean, so many people. Like, do you guys know anybody who's been to jail or prison sure. my, for a significant time besides for just a DUI or something? My best friend went to prison. She had a eight-month-old, and they put her away for about a year and a half. And she also, she, not only did she have an eight-month-old, she had two other children too. So three children. She's a mother. She went to jail for selling jeans, uh, uh, something about selling jeans and, and the goods weren't delivered. Ah. And... The way they treated her, she's beautiful. And she writes about it in her book called Fuck My Life, was despicable. And it just stripped her of everything, exactly what you're saying. And it was yeah. torture. And thank God she got she got out. She got to write about it. And she's living a beautiful life now. But from what she's told me, the prison system is fucked. We also have, I mean, rest his soul now, he just recently passed, but our nephew's father, he had been he, he went in the prison system young and he, he's been on the show and told the story but he had been you know he'd been in san quentin he'd been in folsom he'd been in chino like his whole and from a very oh, young chino. age and he got to the point where he like he had been by it's you know it's called getting violated violated like the maximum amount of times where eventually they had to get him out but they spent the greater part of his adult life going through the system and basically just not being able to to get out because of how the system operates and he was a, he was an addict right so right he was not necessarily a violent offender but like drugs just overtook and he just spent the majority of his life in the prison system. Right. You just hit on something that's really important for people to understand is that most, a great deal of people, and I don't have the exact stats, that are in the prison system and jail systems are there on violations. Yep. They're there because they violated their terms of probation or parole. And so they go back in. And the probation and paroles, you can violate those without even committing a crime. Or you can violate them by committing a misdemeanor, not showing up to your appointment of testing dirty for marijuana. Especially if you're an addict. Drinking, yep. you're, you're an addict or whatever. And you can do them for other, or showing up, you're someone who has a restraining order against something like that. And so that's a lot of resources and a lot of, uh, you know, I always think of it as like, we're a capitalistic society, right? You're entrepreneurs. You believe in the capitalist system, right? So I think we should follow the money here. And I don't think it's good to have us have the highest population of prisoners in the entire world. I mean, that's a huge brain drain. That's a huge economic resource. And I know why it's happening. It's because there's money flowing towards these prison systems. The prison unions are very strong. It's all these things, but that is not a very smart allocation of capital. We need these people to be rehabilitated while lowering the crime rate. And we need to adhere to our bill of rights and not be torturing people. <laughs> Don't tell me that you can that you don't have a responsibility not to torture somebody. If somebody is in your custody, they cannot, they should not be tortured on a regular basis. I don't care if it's Jeffrey Epstein or it's a white collar criminal, the worst person you could possibly imagine. Either we believe in these spiritual principles or we don't. Do you believe in torturing people? Is your answer yes when they're really bad? And if that's the answer, then I think you need to check yourself. It's you know? also great. What I consider really bad, you might not consider really bad. Right. So 
that's that's hard too. It's like you you can't torture some and not all of them. You don't it's, right. because what is really really bad. I think there like I think there obviously needs to be a ter- a deterrent for people that are going to commit violent crimes against against regular citizens, right? Like if you're murdering people or hurting people, like there needs to be a deterrent there and there needs to be a, a penalty. If you're harming children, like right. I don't have a lot of sympathy for you there. I've been very vocal on the show like there needs to be deterrent. But you know, we have people in the prison system that are in there for things like marijuana that are now legal. Or and, selling jeans. Or Yeah, or like you can go get marijuana anywhere in LA, right? And there's people that are in the prison system for 20, 30, 40 years now for nonviolent crimes. That, that to me is a waste of resources, a waste of capital. It's also people are doing this normally now and sitting in the, like the people that are sitting in the system because maybe they were a few years before right. it became legal. Like to me, that's crazy. To yeah. me, like federally, people should look across the board and say, okay, like maybe those people shouldn't be sitting and being and wasted, wasting federal resources and state resources when for nonviolent crimes. Yeah. No, I agree. And but I don't know little, the answers for the other violence. I mean, for there's got to be some deterrent for violent crime. Oh, of course. And I mean, taking your freedom away forever is a pretty big deterrent. But I don't think being uh, shanked by a gang member is should ever be something the state condones. Sure. No, and of course not. And if that's a high probability of that, then they condone it. So, and I don't care what you did. So, yeah. It's a it's a messed up system and we got to do something about it. And it seems like we are doing something about it. It seems like the tables are turning and people are starting to realize because because you can't have this many people in prisons and jail and not have people like you guys who are directly affected. I mean, you just told me two people that are close to you that are have had these horrible experiences. Yeah, it's wild. Right. Can you on a micro level tell us what kind of torture you're talking about? Are you talking about they take your food away or they hurt you? Like what are the actual micro things they're doing that is torture? Well, what happens in prisons is the, um, in, in jails and prisons, but is that the guards will put you in dangerous situations. So if you're in there on a sex crime, even if you've just been charged with one and not convicted of one, they'll put you in there with a gang, a gang, which is guaranteed to get hurt. Or they'll go in there and they'll take uh, everything you have and throw it away under a search. Or they'll you be on the yard and they'll allow someone to beat you up until they break in. It's just everything like that. I mean, people, it's well-documented. People get raped in prisons and shanked and all kinds of stuff. It's just a very dangerous place. Just very, very dangerous. How long were you in prison the first time? Or jail, I should say, right? Not prison. Yeah. I mean, my total time in jail was only like, boy, now I think of it. It wasn't long at all. It was about a month and a half. I did jail in the front and back into the prison. prison. A month and a half seems like long though to me. Like that's a, each day seems like it's dripping water. Yeah. I mean, oh. In jail, you're put, uh, when in jail, I was in a pod, what's called a pod. And that's where a bunch of, it's like a dorm. And that was crazy and dangerous and just wild. You literally have, you have a, a station where the cops are and there's two of them in there. And they're watching a bunch of pods, like a, like watching a fishbowl. And you know, and each one of those pods could have up to 90, 100 guys or something. And so they're watching each of them. So clearly stuff happens that they don't, they can't do anything about, or they don't have the manpower like to what? deal with it. Like what? I'm so curious. In the book, in, in Straight Pepper Diet, I, I wrote about that kid, Stephen, who was in there. He was a man child. He was a mentally disabled or mentally challenged, severe. I think he was severely autistic. And he had, um, was accused of, of some child molestation. And I think he was maybe 18 years old, but was like 11 year old mentally or six years old or something. And he was raped by a big, bad gang gang guy. The guy literally just took a 
bunk bed, put sheets up so the cops couldn't see it, and he took him back there and raped him. I mean, it's just horrible stuff like that. I mean, nothing ever happened of it. You know, if you told on the guy or reported it, you'd be you'd be subject to retaliation. The politics in jail amongst the prisoners seem crazy too. That seems like a whole. I feel like that's another book that you have to write, like the politics with. Yeah, I don't know enough about it to write anything. Like I wasn't in there long enough. But I mean, it's funny. My my wife was saying today, she's like, you need to write a book about Jimmy. Everybody loves Jimmy. Like, do you remember Jimmy, the, the my cellmate in Chino? Like everybody, loves, a book. <laughs> everybody loves Jimmy. And Jimmy is just this amazing character. Like people ask me, you keep in touch with Jimmy? I'm like, no, Jimmy's a very dangerous person. <laughs> I do not keep in touch with Jimmy. Jimmy was this guy who I was cellmates with. He was a 18 year old kid high on speed and robbed a up in Big Bear and robbed a um, pawn shop and got put in jail for eight, 20 years or something. And he was 18 years old. I, mean, he, I remember him telling me he's 18 years old and he looks at the calendar on the wall and it's like he looks at a whole decade of his life. He was on a football team at Big Bear. He was a troubled kid, but never done anything. But he was on meth and got high and did this horrible, horrible thing. And he was in there and he was kind of my protector, but he was he was like my protector the way that a wild tiger that might turn on you could be your protector. <laughs> like hopefully he doesn't turn on you. But you know, he was clearly a total addict. And he was one of these guys who was in the system that just like it's so sad to see a guy. I mean, the chance of that guy ever recuperating from those years in prison. And to answer your question, he was a I was in Chino in an area where gang dropouts had been. And he on his last day of when he was about to get out on his first turn, which is after like 10 years after an attempted murder charge, he was told to murder a fellow gang member and he refused to do so. So they attacked him and he got jumped out. And once you've been jumped out of gang in prison, you can't be in general population because you'll get killed. So that's, that was his story. And he was just, I mean, he's one of the best characters. I, I wish I came up with him fictionally because it's so, he was so brilliant. How do you, how do you avoid the gang system in prison if you're there for a long stint like it sounds like you like it's it's like it's, it sounds like the strategy would be like keep to yourself but you almost can't in a way and so you almost like get for it's from what i've seen and what i've heard it sounds like you get sucked in like how do you avoid all of that if you want to just do your time and get out i don't because that's the thing that's scary right it's like yeah the only experience i have with that and this very limited experience was i was the big book thumper guy I literally had a big book. I meditated and prayed and read my big book all day long. And so, and I didn't fuck around. I didn't get money in there. I didn't do any favors for anybody. I never ate anything from commissary. I didn't play any of the games anybody plays. And I still had some run-ins, careful, close calls. So I was the, it was almost like being the preacher probably in a, in a jail. That's smart that you didn't get commissary because that seems like that's a big, a big thing yeah. in there. Yeah, I knew that's that. That's smart. I just did not play Very, that very game. smart. Yeah, yeah, just didn't do it. So how long did you, you said you spent a month and a half in jail and then how long were you in prison? Uh, 120 days, I think. Yeah. And what did it feel like when you got out? And I'm assuming you weren't drinking and oh, you weren't drinking. No, I've been sober for two years when I got out. Got it. The only reason I got out, well, that's the story in the book, but it was through the 12 steps and the support of the people in 12 steps is why I got out without having to go back in because I was under a 90 day evaluation where I could have had to do more time, years more time. And I don't think I could have survived any more significant time in there. So when I got out, I went to stay with my ex-girlfriend who was also a criminal defense lawyer in West LA, not too far from here. I just remember walking down the street and drinking uh, a Starbucks 
and just being like, this is the best fucking Starbucks I've ever drank in my life. Like, oh my God. And just like walking her dog and just looking around and, and my history or what I, what I deal with on a regular basis. So it wasn't like I came out and went, everything's glorious now. I'm a two-strike felon, registered sex offender, disbarred lawyer. Things are cheery, but if, you, if you're in 12 steps, you know one thing is that we take things one day at a time, one minute, one second at a time when we have to. And so at that moment, I remember being the happiest, maybe some of the most joy I'd ever felt in my life. And, and one of the reasons is because I was free of addiction at that point. One thing about jail is it's a great rehab, especially if you did it the way I did it. Like I didn't eat, like I said, I didn't commissary, I didn't smoke cigarettes, I didn't drink any of the alcohol that was in there. I did push-ups and prayed. That's what I did in prison. Smart. You know? Really smart. So what do you did you stop drinking for good after that? The night of my arrest was my last drink, July 26, 2003. Congratulations. Thank you. That's cool. For people that are struggling with addiction that are listening to this story and hoping to turn their life around, like what do you think it was? I mean, outside of obviously going to prison and all these terrible things, but like, was there was there a mental unlock or some tool that you found outside of Twelve Steps that was like, okay, this is how I'm going to turn it all around? Like, was was there an epiphany? Was it or is it just day by day? And like, how would you for somebody that is struggling with addiction, like, what would you tell them? Because obviously, since then, multiple author, like, successful, like your life's obviously you're married, like everything seems to be going great now. Oh, well, good question. I hate when people say good question because it makes it, all of your questions have been good. Who's better? <laughs> Me, huh? You're both very good. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> well, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is I think that whenever we do these episodes, we get a lot of great messages from the audience. Either they have a family member or a friend that they turn on. And it's like the idea here is like, I want to show people that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that you can turn your yeah, life yeah, around. Yeah. And if there is an unlock that you could pass on to someone, obviously we're going to link out to all 12 steps and you yeah. know, all the re recovery programs. But is there something that you have found that has helped you on your journey? One thing that probably differs, like separates me from a lot of other sponsors in, in the 12-step rooms, in all the different programs that I sponsor in, is that I really am into the power of 12 steps and how they, and the product that you will become. And what I mean by that is, imagine if you're, competing for a job with somebody. Again, we live in capitalistic society, right? You're competing with a job someone. I tell my I tell my sponsor, imagine that you're you, you're drinking every night, smoking cigarettes, waking up barely in time to get to work. Okay? That's you now. Now imagine you're competing with this dude. Sober 10 years, never late, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, takes care of his body, has a spiritual program believes in honesty, integrity, and hard work, who do you want to compete with? Whether it's athleticism, whether it's service, whether it's work, whatever you're doing, you're going to be very powerful as a recovered addict. So instead of thinking of it, you hear a lot in the rooms of like, oh, I'm a piece of shit and I'm, I'm by the grace of God, I, I, I'm just, I don't drink and smoke anymore. I'm like, I'm not into that. I'm into this is a self-improvement program, whether people, a lot of people say it's not, it is. Uh, 12 Steps are a self-improvement program that involves spirituality. And just be honest with yourself, who do you wanna be? If you really like drinking and you're willing to die young, commit, maybe commit horrible acts and uh, have liver problems and all these things, if you're, if you're that serious of a drinker, then be honest and say, okay, I, I'm cool with it. I'm gonna die like that. 
But be honest with yourself who you are and what you want. I, it was very easy to me. I never wanted to be an addict. I, I always wanted to achieve certain goals. I've always been an athlete. The idea of smoking and drinking and being an athlete is ridiculous. That's that's probably, I don't know if that's a... It's an amazing I answer. I, I, hope, I hope it helps somebody out there listening because it's just... I just work, I work with a lot of sober people, especially since COVID happened. I've sponsored a lot of people through, um, you know, all over the country, which I normally don't do because you can do it through Zoom. It's heartbreaking, but it's also like, you just see there's so many people out there struggling with different things. And man, it's so powerful to get, a con get control of your life. Do you and see more alcohol, more pills, more hard drugs? What do you see the most? I see alcohol, cigarettes, and sex almost all the time maybe a little pills here and there, but that probably has more to do with me than them because yeah. they see my story and they know I didn't, I was never a pill popper. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't do any, I didn't do heroin or Coke or any of that. I did a little Coke here and there, but never addict, never to the point of addiction. So that's it. Your new book, <laughs> tell us all about it and what we can expect. So the Paul's graph revelation is where straight pepper diet lefts off. So if you, if you haven't read straight pepper diet, please read that. I promise you, you'll find it entertaining. And you so, won't put it down. It's very entertaining and honest. And so this one's written uh, very similarly, but this is the book that takes you from okay, now that you've now that you've survived the worst scenario, how do you go how do you move forward? How do you live a sober life? How do you move forward? And in my particular circumstances, I have this incredibly daunting label now. I'm a registered sex offender, two-strike felon disbarred lawyer, right? How can you mentally, emotionally, financially, physically move on from that? And it's like my other book, it's a day-to-day -day first person account of that, of just like, first it was just straight up survival. Like how the hell does a guy like me get a job? Like who the hell is going to hire me? Like coming to this podcast 10 years ago, I would have been freaked out. I'd been like, the people at the desk are going to do a run a check on me. I'm going to get in trouble for even being here. Like it's scary to even be and to, to have these labels. And now I've moved on to the point of where I rarely even think about it. I am 100% okay with the truth of what happened and where I am now and what I do with my life. But it wasn't an easy journey. This, this book takes how I got a job. I ended up getting a job. I'll, I'll tell one thing that's in the book. I ended up getting a job in a Fortune 500 company as a registered sex offender which is mind-boggling and the way it happened was mind-boggling. People are probably listening to this thinking the registered sex offender thing. The reason it was, I, sh I should probably clarify that. The reason I'm a registered sex offender is because when I broke into that massage parlor, the DA opined that I was there to commit a rape. In California, we have laws that prevent evidence of alcohol being used as a defense to your mental state. So if I'd have been on crack that night, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I'd still be a lawyer, but because you can't present that defense or you can, but only in a limited way. And the fact that I am who I am and was risking 20 years in prison, I pled guilty to assault with intent to commit rape. And even though the guy, it was a man and you can't rape a man, that they said that when I broke into the place, my intent was to commit a rape. So that's why I'm a registered sex offender. So it didn't have to do with the, the massage person it had to do with the guy the massage parlor was closed there was nobody in there it was three in the morning i just thought maybe the they thought you were going there to, to the massage parlor to like have sex with a, one of the girls there so it was actually about the guy they thought the da thought that i had 
was going to break into the massage parlor with the intent to commit a rape on a masseuse, even though I stopped got and got $100 and I was out of my mind and everything. And so that's why. Well, and also I could be wrong on this, but because you're a lawyer, I felt I feel like you had a much bigger target on your back as well. Right? They're going to make an example of somebody that has a law degree that's passed the bar that is committing crimes. Yeah, I agree with that, especially since it gave me a chance with my DUI. And I had the same experience with DUI. I was very well connected in Riverside. I worked for one of the biggest law firms there and I was an up and comer and they were, they threw the book at me. And I think in the, in the Los Angeles, I, I, people will argue with this, but I think it was actually a bad move on my part to hire one. I had one of the best lawyers in LA. Oh, yeah, it makes you a bigger that, target. I think the DA really was looking forward to getting some publicity and, and trying this case. It's crazy though, because all your struggles have made you this incredible author with two books. I mean, that's cool to look at. Well, that's got to be a good feeling. I think what we oh, love yeah. about this story, especially for people that are maybe not as far along on the path of recovery as you are, is like, it's a story of redemption. Like, even though you have all of these marks on your record, you're still functioning in society and still a successful human being. And I think that's what people need to hear is like, it's not, there is a light at the tunnel if you work for it and you do the steps and you, and you get into recovery. Like, it's not like, hey, you have all these labels and your life's over. You can turn it around. Oh, yeah. I mean- my life, I mean, I have sponsees that are like celebrities that have that weren't celebrities when they started on the road to recovery, successful lawyers that had been not able to get their bar license because they were addicts. I mean, it's just amazing. But my life, so everybody has to start where they are. Obviously, it's a little different when you start where I was, given the things. But most people don't come to me with these type of situation. They come to me before that, thank God. So yeah, just it, it, totally. I mean, I, to give you an example of my life now, it's like I'm married to the my wife. I'm absolutely in love with her and I'm just so grateful for her. I, I live in this beautiful house in Highland Park. I play golf twice a week. I'm in the best health I've ever been. I'm 50 years old and I'm as good a shape now as I was when I was 24 and middleweight kickboxer. And I get to help people. What a life. Yeah. Feel free to come back anytime. Where can everyone buy both of your books? I personally read your book on my iPhone when I couldn't sleep at night. So I know you can get it there, but where else? Uh, it's on Amazon. I think, we've, I think we've exclusively gone Amazon. You can go to my website, josephwnaus.com, N-A-U-S. S as in Sam, and you can read the first chapter of both of them, I think, and you can go to Audible. They're both on Audible. If you like audio, I, I voiced both of them. And yeah, you can read them there. Please, we'll link it please all Please do. Out. What's yeah. your Thank Instagram you. handle? It's Joseph W. Naus, but you're just going to find golf swings there. Okay. 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 And then my last question is, if someone is struggling with addiction and they're listening to this podcast, what's the resource that they should go to if you were to recommend one? Ooh listening to this podcast and they want a resource. Well, I, they can go to any, uh, they can just go to any, whatever their addiction is, they can go to the 12-step version of that and go find a meeting. If you're not at that point and you want some information and you're not sold on 12 steps, I would highly recommend you read either of my books. And I would also recommend that you read the book called The Pleasure Trap, which sets out the scientific basis for, for addiction. Yeah, those are, that, that's probably what I would recommend. Thank you so much for can taking I, the time. Can I ask you guys a question? Sure. What's it like living in Austin? Because I, my wife and I are just like smog, traffic, 
why am I paying you, this you, much for a house? You think it's coming out? You think it's coming out? Can we convince you here? Not necessarily um, Austin, but maybe sure. maybe some other places more a little more green. Well, the big I think the there's a lot there's a assortment of decisions, and Lauren and I did that episode on why we moved to Texas. But the biggest thing is we have a young daughter now; she's a year old, yeah. and we wanted a place where we had a little bit more open space, green nature, and I think the one beautiful. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful things about Austin, but. The Austin, particular compared to some other places in Texas, like you get all that nature, you get the lakes, you get the rivers, you get you know the greenery, um, amazing food, amazing people. I, I have not missed one thing about California. It's, since it's we left. very idyllic. Like yeah. it's very, it's it's what I envisioned when I was like was little for a family. It's very serene, and there is. It's kind of like a sanctuary. And we're in the suburbs, you know. We got. I didn't. I wasn't. I wasn't feeling that in LA. The air is so crisp over there. That's like the biggest thing. Like, just breathe fresh air. Yeah. Even we just had that storm there. We were there with the crazy storm. Our life is so chaotic. So to be able to slow down and take walks in the morning, and and also it's amazing because it's two hours ahead. So by the time I've done all the wellness things I want to do, a cold shower, a walk, had sat and had coffee, I read my book, all these things, and it's eleven o'clock. It's nine o'clock. In California. So that's been absolutely fucking amazing to be able to be two hours ahead. Yeah. And even with wow. the storm, we were just there. And obviously there's an infrastructure issue with in Texas with, you know, the power going out and yeah. all that. And it was cold as shit and the roads are all icy. But even during that, people from California are like thinking about coming back to California. I'm like, no, even with the storm, I still like Austin better. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. There's a lot of good, it's a lot of it's and you know what it feels like right now? It's such a growth city, which I'm sure some people in Texas dislike, but it feels like there's just so much energy in the city and it feels like so much is happening there. And it, to me, like I, I started to feel a little bit more stagnant in, in LA and bigger cities. And so I like that we're in nature, have space and we'll also have the kind of like pace of like, oh, this feels like it's a boom town, like it's growing. Oh, okay. We're going to fly out there. Cause Come I know check my, it out. Cause I, I don't know anything about Texas. I've only flown through there a few times. I did have a friend who was in Austin. He said, Austin's great, but just remember you're surrounded by Texas. <laughs> That's what he always said to me. But I was like- That's interesting. Because I, I never thought that it was green, but I don't know anything about it. All, all I see is they have a tournament, PGA tournament every year in Austin that they- and it looked with the bridge in the background. Yeah, they have a they have a great actually. That's really funny that you say that. They have the thing I keep hearing about it is their golf community. It's like everywhere. I love pretty much everything about Texas. Really, pretty okay, much everything. Cool. I mean, we it's, like it. we, it's been it's Check been it nice. If you but, come you know, out, you got to let us know. We also cool. grew up here too, so it was nice to have a change of pace, right? Wow. Like we. We're from Southern, Southern California. I had some businesses in Riverside, actually, in Corona. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, once oh. upon a time. And so, like, I, we I, we felt like, hey, like, California is always going to be here. It does this. But, like, to have a little bit of a change of pace and do something different, I yeah. think, like, it's good for people to change once in a while. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely going to fly out there and, tr- and we're going to check it out. Yeah, you got to check it out. You have a two-year-old? One-year-old. One-year-old? Yep. It's fine. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. It's fine. Thank you so much for taking the time, but we will link out your books and come back anytime because I feel like there's so many questions that I could have still asked you on my list. Maybe the next one we do with the studio in Texas. Yeah, thanks for cool. thanks for yeah. uh, appeasing my curiosity about so many. I'm Sorry. sure people are curious about a couple things. Taylor, don't you get any ideas back there about the massage parlors? Taylor's not even there. He already left. He skid out in his car. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, okay. Yeah, no, they're rating them on a daily basis now, so don't go. Don't go. <laughs> Cheers. Do you want to win a copy of Joseph's book? It is good. It is juicy. It is to the point. All you have to do is tell us your favorite part of this episode with Joseph on my latest Instagram at The Skinny Confidential, and someone from the team will drop into one of your inboxes. With that, make sure you've rated and reviewed the podcast on iTunes. It truly takes two seconds and helps grow the show.